0: Hello, listener, and welcome to another episode of AOC. Lately, we've started doing quote-unquote mood boards, suggesting how you can best enjoy the comic we're discussing in each and every episode. However, the topic of It's Lonely at the Center of the Earth by Zoe Thorogood is a challenging one. Straight out the gate, here's a couple of trigger warnings. In this episode, we'll be discussing suicide, depression, and other mental health-related topics. This comic tackles very difficult subject matters, and we suggest reading it when you're feeling on top of things. And if this episode in its entirety isn't for you, we understand. Take care, all right? With that in mind, let's get deep.
1: I'm Paul Duffield, and I have just finished playing Alan Wake 2 and I've just finished talking to Jaws about finishing Alan Wake 2.
0: Hi, I'm Jaws. I have also recently finished Alan Wake 2 and also just talked with Paul about Alan Wake 2. And if my voice sounds shot as fuck, it's because I've been yelling for the last two hours.
1: Drawing isn't easy. Drawing comics isn't easy. Living a life what's drawing comics isn't easy. Living a life where comics are your only outlet isn't easy. This is a story about all of that, and it isn't easy.
0: When your entire existence depends on your ability to create, creativity becomes a toxic, codependent relationship. The moment you stop producing, you're living on borrowed time, because you don't want to be a waste, do you? This autobiography came from my juggler, stripped back my skin, and yanked out my self-hatred for all to see. Having front row seats was painful, cathartic, and funny, but most of all, it was validating. So, for characters, we obviously have Zoe, who is the person making the story about themselves, 23 years old. And then there's their friend called Izzy, who comes in and out a couple of times. And other than that, there's the unnamed love interest and family. As far as I'm concerned, they're unnamed anyway. None of the names of these characters are really that important, just that these are the people taking part of the story.
1: Yeah, and it's worth um, double stating this is an autobiography, so they're all real or a fictionalized version of real characters. It is occasionally difficult to tell how much is fictionalized and how much is just a straight up, super honest autobiography. And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, actually, is how... Did that come across to you?
0: I do think an element that made me question it a little bit while going, but not in such a direct way, was the fact that the story starts over again. It begins with a redo several times, where it seems like Zoe, in the story, is hunting for the perfect beginning. And at that point, I went, okay, we, we've had so many beginnings now, which is the real one? When do we just start?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting element. Again, for readers who haven't read it, the idea at the very beginning is that Zoe is working on an autobiography. She wants to find the perfect plot to put in the autobiography. So the plot that she creates for herself is I'm about to go to a comic convention in America. Then COVID hits. And so she restarts the story halfway through and then the same quote-unquote plot is several years later her going to Thought Bubble which is an English convention and at that point there's literally a title page in the middle of the book which I loved. I thought that was a really really nice touch but it almost felt like a considered structure because it did occur almost exactly halfway through and I was like how much of this was written kind of on the cuff whilst she was experiencing it and how much was restructured after the fact because I thought the overall structure of the book was really beautiful, like really nicely balanced.
0: Yeah, that's a very solid point. It reads like something almost spontaneous and made on the go, but it's way too structured and well put together for that to be the case, I believe. So for me, if I were to take a very wild guess, I do think it's a very good mix of someone who perhaps is good at logging their life on the go and then take those log notes and put it into a cohesive storytelling down the road.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. And maybe having created certain key pages ahead of time, because there are weird head fuck moments where you see pages from the comic in the comic as she's drawing them either before or after you see them in the actual comic. Very weird.
0: Yeah, what do you think of the art style of this one, the visual execution?
1: It's lovely, I thought. Again, I'm not always one for rigid panel borders, and a lot of these pages are just straight up, how old is it? It's a 4 by 3 grid, so 12 panels a page, and I appreciated the art, even if it wasn't necessarily my taste. One of the things I liked about it was how free it was with different art styles and different ways of drawing the characters, and that each different art style and way of drawing meant something. How about you?
0: Yeah, I loved it. I initially picked this up because I saw a couple of pages from it when I googled the comic, and I was immediately intrigued by the mix and mash of different visual expressions. I thought it was very, very, very cleverly executed. Funnily enough, since this is a story about mental health, effectively, it comes across so thought out and planned that it's almost hard to grasp that it's made by someone who at the time was struggling so much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it did feel very raw. That rawness sort of pulled me in and took me along with it. But at the same time, you're right, there was a half, half of my mind focusing on the craftsmanship going into the comic that I thought was just beautiful, like really well done. And the last time I've seen someone really experimenting with media like that in a comic was probably Bill Sienkiewicz or something like that. So you mentioned that this really hit you hard. I can see why, because of some of the conversations that we've had before. But do you want to sort of just talk a bit about how that felt reading it?
0: Yeah, man. I have to be completely honest and say that I was dreading this recording a little bit and not because I have any issues sharing anything of what I'm about to share. It's more that I don't want to sound like a fucking narcissist. (laughs) And also, I don't want to be like one of the people that she kept encountering at thought was like, unrelatable, unrelatable, so relatable. (laughs) This story could have been written about me, but at a later stage in life. One of the notes I made, she's 23, what am I doing with my life? Because if she has all these opportunities already and this freaking skill set to execute her ambition, holy cannoli, I should just uh, hang up the towel and go home and call it quits. But as someone who struggles a lot mentally in myself, and I'm I'm quite honest about that, because that's also another note I made about the story, is that almost no experience is unique, but it can certainly feel that way. And that's why sharing these kind of stories is so important. Because we sadly still live in a society where mental health is treated as a taboo and people go through these episodes of life completely isolated. And as someone who chronically dislikes myself, always question my worth and the point of me being here, it was very hard seeing that mirrored in someone else because we've probably all been told by a well-meaning friend when you're talking poorly about yourself that don't bully my friend because that's their sweet way of saying like (laughs) don't talk yourself down but seeing someone else express themselves exactly like I do in a way where oh yeah, if I can't draw, I should just kill myself because those are thoughts that I have to this day where if I'm not drawing, I feel like I'm a leech, an ulcer, someone who do not belong and have no right in being here. If I'm not drawing, the only thing that I feel like I remotely know how to do, then what the fuck is the point? Then I'm just wasting air and resources. And to see that portrayed so blatantly by someone else had me go, on i thought i was alone in being this fucking mean to myself and this fucked up and you're telling me that there's this person out there who's this fucking good and she also struggles with this that's bullshit
1: (laughs) Mm. that was one of the really potent things about the comic i think is that going through this kind of thing even in a society i think which would be extremely good or supportive about talking about mental health is still isolating Because even when the people around you mean you well, the act of feeling this way about yourself distances you from them and distances you from the ability to, like, hear them. Because you can't hear their compliments. You can't hear their reassurances. And choosing to shine an incredibly strong, uncompromising, definitely being embarrassing for Zoe to have exposed all this stuff as she constantly talks about, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing? But she shone a light into the middle of that lonely place. And everybody else who's been in that lonely place can see, shit, I'm not alone in some genuine way, even though we're both in our own lonely places. I thought that was kind of beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's very beautiful and I think it's very sincere since I never get the impression that she set out to do some sort of self-help book or some, I'm sharing this to help others. And there's nothing wrong with that, even though I just said that in a very mocking voice. (laughs) But there's nothing wrong (laughs) with creating tools for others to better themselves in any way, shape or form. But there's just something rather uniquely beautifully selfish about her portrayal of mental health down to the point where how crass she could be to her friend. Her friend is supposed to help her a Thought Bubble, and then they meet up the night before, and Izzy gets completely fucking shitfaced and ends up just puking her guts out in the bathroom and then passing out, hugging the toilet. The next morning, Izzy is, of course, too hungover to come help her out, and she is quite crass towards Izzy, in a way where I don't think I could talk to my friend that way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's very honest about herself, like warts and all. It makes the reading experience really fascinating, but also slightly uncomfortable at times. Because there's an element to it, uh, and I could feel this quite strongly, because I'm very familiar with the comic scene that she's talking about. I've been to Thought Bubble. I know some of the people in this comic, and I've probably seen Zoe without realising it. There's also this sense of sort of, it's almost like she's taking on a dare, she's been told that she's the next new thing in comics she's been told that her work's really hot and that you know she should continue and she's getting book deals and a lot of this is like yeah yeah you think what about this then do you think you'll put this in the comic what about this (laughs) and it's almost like a sort of a constant challenge to the people reading it and the people publishing it and the world that it occupies This was one of the things that I found most fascinating about it, because I normally do not enjoy autobiocomics. I normally feel really uncomfortable reading them. And by the end, I just think, well, I know way too much about your life now. You know, what have you done to your life? But with this, there was almost sort of like a conscious embrace of that fact. It sort of knew what it was doing and it knew what it was. And it said, yes, so what? This is what the industry wants. This is what people are reading. Why are you reading it? Carry on reading it then. I found that level of provocation going on in it, something that allowed me to get over the fact that I was reading autobio.
0: Oh, interesting. That's so removed from how I feel about autobios. When the format is good, I really enjoy it. It gives me an insight that I often very much appreciate. Narcissism Mm. and all. I don't get embarrassed over... Or actually, I wanted to ask you, what embarrasses you?
1: Oh, it's not a sense of embarrassment. It's just a complicated relationship with autobio comics as a writer and a creator myself. I don't think I would do one, but I know people, like personally know people who have done one and who have accidentally ruined their lives with it or regret doing it deeply. Because the people who are in that don't really get to consent to being on the page. And they're suddenly there forever. A slice of their life, along with your life, it's free for everyone to look at. And because they're often indie comics, they're written by people in small crowds, you can then get everybody in the crowd gets this weird insight into the life of someone you're then going to meet again. And, you know, there are things that I found out about my friends through autobiographical comics that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And I'm sure there are, you know, there are wiser and less wiser ways of doing autobiographies. I'm not sort of slating the whole thing. I'm just saying it's a very, even more than a normal story. It's like playing with a powder keg, I think.
0: Yeah, I super see where you're coming from, but I firmly believe, as you briefly touch upon, there are better and worse ways of solving it. I do think the grace of time helps you out a lot, to not do it rushed, and to consider how and who you portray, where and when, etc. I think it's cleverly done in this comic, where she portrays people with animal heads. To make them unreadable as people, we don't know what they look like because most people here, aside from a very selected few, herself included, have animal heads throughout, so I don't know who they are, and she doesn't name drop them, or at least most of them.
1: Yeah, and I thought it was sensitively done in that respect. The only people that you get a massive insight into, in fact, the only people who are kind of treated in any different way are her love interest, her friend, and her parents. And I feel like that's a small enough quote unquote cast. The impact from that isn't going to be huge. And it it feels like at the very least with her friend, her friend knows she's in it. In fact, there's that really funny bit when later when she gets the thought bubble, she's like, can you draw me with my ass hanging out when I'm in the toilet? And she's like, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's super cute. I really appreciated that meta commentary.
1: Yeah, very nice. But yeah, I would agree with you. You know, it managed to dispel those awkward feelings by challenging them by saying, I recognize this and I've literally put it in my comic. I feel weird about this, but also I feel compelled to do it. And I think that that exposes this element of the industry, the comics industry in general, storytelling in general, which thrives on this kind of voyeurism, I guess would be the right way of putting it. And that can be positive voyeurism. It can be seeing and feeling seen. It can be relatable
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it can also be negative voyeurism it, it can be feeding on drama it can be you know scrolling through the latest controversy on twitter it can be l- learning something about a friend in a biographical comic you know whatever it happens to be
0: it sounds like you had a very unfortunate incident in your life where you obtained information you didn't necessarily want through this format because i've never seen it that way but i think also And I don't say this because I think I'm fucking brilliant, because I think I've stated earlier in this episode that I'm severely fucking damaged. I do think I tend to downplay people's lack of willingness or capability to see things from several sides. So when I experience a biography or autobiography in any sort of way and people are named, or not named, but explained in a way, at least included in the story in some way, I am still capable of going, oh yeah, but this is just one person's point of view. So this isn't the universal truth necessarily. It's a highly subjective truth and I can accept that. And then I tend to forget that most people are just like clown car honk honk. I take this at, as the gospel. Let's fucking go. Hey ho. <laughs> so I think that's why I approach this medium very differently.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth saying that it wasn't a super dramatic moment in my life or something. It was quite a trivial thing that I found out But at the time, I remember thinking, wow, did they know that that was going to be in there years later? Do they regret that now?
0: I do tend to forget that a lot of people just aren't fucking capable of objectivity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're not 100% sure how much of this is straight up real, how much of it is sort of interpretive or a fictionalized account. And I think the kind of surreality of some parts of it works really well in its favor.
0: Did you have some bits who stood out to you in any way, shape or form?
1: So this was an unusual one. I have three lines of notes on this, partly because there are no page numbers and it got quite hard to keep notes, partly because the reading experience felt so unique that I didn't want to interrupt myself. And then when I'd finished reading it, it stuck with me so vividly that I didn't think I needed to take any notes. I do have a bookmark in here. Um, almost roughly halfway through, maybe just before halfway through, there is a giant panel which is sort of striped in diagonals. And each diagonal stripe is in a different style. And one of them is actually a photograph. You could tell that it's drawn over a photographic reference of her jumping in the air. It just felt so lovely and experimental but also recognizable you know I've drawn over those photographs of myself before but I've never shown the photograph underneath and it was just a, a lovely little kind of artistic nod to the experience of slightly exposing yourself like this and then in the next page you've got a nine panel grid where she's talking about how she can change herself through the art of art mm-hmm. <laughs> And she can fix her teeth, she can change her hair, she can be someone else, and then she becomes a character she's already drawn. She can be loved, and there are like hands coming up and stroking her. She can disappear, and she disappears. I just thought such a beautiful, playful way of communicating something. And then down the bottom, when she says, I can be new, and she's just a sketch, that really hit home. Because I know what it's like searching for that new look, that new feel, that new way that you want to draw. I don't think I've read something that speaks so directly to artists before in this way.
0: Yeah, I was thinking just the same. That even if you took out the mental health element of it, which I also think is, for a lot of creative people, deeply related. Because I don't know what it is, but a lot of creatives fucking struggle, dude. But even that aside, if you are the 1% unicorn who have a perfectly functioning brain and a happy, healthy life and all of that stuff that most of us can only just like masturbate to in our dreams, you could still relate to the artistic aspect of this with the page that you just mentioned, where she shows herself in so many different ways, or not at all, because like you said, in in one of the panels, she's not even there. (laughs) And it's, yeah... Man, this comic really touched me. I really liked it. <laughs> mm. Even though it was so tricky, my reading experience was a little bit different with this. I read it while streaming. I didn't stream the pages, obviously, oh. but I had the camera aimed at like my desk, but far enough away that you just see me flicking pages. So I sat down with my notepad and I took notes. And every now and then I would pause and I would talk a little bit about something with my chat and be like... Oh my god, guys, oh. this is deep. And then I would read out loud a little bit of dialogue. <laughs> one, of my, one of my viewers went, it's so surreal that you are listening to smooth Ghibli jazz and you're reading this incredibly fucking mental <laughs> health related stuff to us. This is such a whiplash. I'm like, yeah, that's how I feel right now. <laughs>
1: Wow. Were you actually listening to the Ghibli jazz whilst you were reading or was that like playing over the stream?
0: Yes, I was listening to it myself.
1: Ah, interesting. I don't normally listen to music when I read, but every now and again when I have done, it's really added something from time to time.
0: With this one, I very quickly realized it was going to be difficult. Mm. So I knew that I needed something to level the playing space for me. Had I put on some fucking really devastating music for this, I would sit on the street and be like, oh, yeah," like I would just be a mess. So I needed something that was right. neutral and not invasive enough to really affect my mood, but just present enough to stabilize me, to be receptible for this kind of story.
1: That's a really um, kind of deep level of self-knowledge when it comes to approaching fiction. Knowing what it can do to you, knowing how you can prevent it from doing that to the extreme and kind of creating a comfortable space for yourself. It's a really clever and self-knowing way to digest something that's difficult.
0: I learned that side of myself very young. This is going to be such a weird roller coaster. <laughs> but when Baby Me was in my early teens, I watched the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and it was my hyperfixation for probably the next year. If I could be the main character in that movie, I would have absolutely been from day one. I started wearing a bandana. I started doing my eyeliner that way. I was obsessed. Wow. And years later, I was like, huh, I got really fucking into that movie. That was really weird. And then I started suddenly seeing a pattern that that's something I tended to do when I was young to get hyper fixated. Now, as an adult, knowing 100% that I'm some sort of neurodivergent, I'm a little bit scared of that hyperfixation because I know it's very consuming, all consuming. And I also know that a lot of media really emotionally impacts me in many different ways. In, for example, if the mood in the genre itself is very heavy, I will get sad. But I also know that if I'm on a very low slope, I need to avoid stuff that is also good because then I become extremely self-deprecating, because why the fuck am I not creating something that is impacting this many people in this way? Like, for example, right now, there's the second book out of a book series that I fucking love, which is Bookshops and Bone Dust by Travis Baldry. The author was even kind enough to give me the PDF early, so I could have read the book before release. But I was so depressed... And I really suffered from what I've just baptized creation envy, Mm. where I kept seeing the outpour of love and support for a lot of my artistic friends, which I, from the bottom of my heart, is so happy that they're getting. But I am not getting because I'm not putting anything out there. And it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm too ill to properly create. (laughs) So... I know when I need to avoid something because it's just going to make me an absolute fucking gremlin towards myself. And that's why, for example, reading this, I knew I needed to, like I said, level the playing field so I could read it in a good conscience and not become too vile to myself in the end.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I recognize parts of that myself, even though I don't struggle so strongly with the self-deprecating side of things it still hits me hard. And I go through periods of, especially when I've read something fantastic, especially when that's by somebody who's younger than me or the same age. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good example. Especially when I'm at a creative low, it makes it much harder to get back on and to just do the thing. This brings me to one of the hearts of this book. Interesting phrase, one of the hearts. I feel like it has a lot of hearts. (laughs) Um, One of the hearts of this book which is about that unusual relationship between the creative side of creation and the fulfilling side of creation and the destructive side of creation. And I feel that it often revolves around an audience and whether you're getting one and whether you're satisfied with that. And I feel that anything short of outrageous success, you know, the kind of success that can ruin you a little bit because it's too much and you don't, you're don't, you not prepared for it, it's almost like nothing feels enough Nothing can fill that kind of like void of wanting your art to be seen and wanting it to be out there. There's something really beautiful and pure, I guess, about just creating for yourself with no expectation of being seen. But then it's also isolating. And this relationship between the audience and the work and the audience and the creator and being seen and creating... I find has been the hardest thing for me to navigate about being a creator of any kind.
0: Yeah, oh god. I knew this episode was going to be tough, but you're hitting <laughs> speaking of hearts, you're hitting at one of my weakest hearts, which is the constant seeking of approval and validation versus being self-sufficient. And I think it's impossible to not involve the economical aspect into this even though i wish we didn't live in a capitalist hellhole we sadly do so you kind of do need to include the fact that you need to make money to do this if this is what you want to do full-time And that in itself becomes an incredibly fucking difficult, toxic chase of visibility. Not necessarily for the validation, but just like, please fucking see me. I need to sell commissions or I need an art director to pick me up or whatever, you know. It's always this peacock dance for money. (laughs) But even that aside, having acknowledged that, for me, it's so wild having grown up in an online scene, seeing that even people with like hundreds of Ks of followers Having just the same mindset as me, a fucking nobody, He's like, "Uh, nobody likes what I do. And I'm just sitting here on the sideline clasping my hands together going respectfully, my brother in Christ. You have probably 200 people in your comment sections wanking you off right now. What are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) But this is the fucked up thing with people is that we are horrible with numbers and no number is ever high enough. We are not capable of imagining a million. We're not capable of imagining a billion. So I feel like there's some weird ass thing in the human brain that I I am certainly not certified to talk about ever that's a much clever person out there, could definitely put into science for me, but there is something in there that is making us so fucking horny for numbers that is also destroying us at the same time.
1: It's weird, isn't it? And I wonder whether it's a universal experience or it's a, a very specific experience limited to certain creators, because I know there are creators out there who don't feel that way. I've talked to them and I've met them, but I know there are a whole lot who do because I've talked to them and met them too. And, and I sort of ping pong back between back and forth between one and the other, depending upon how low or high my mood is. Part of that, I think, is because I have achieved a reasonable amount of, of success with stuff that I've done in the past. But part of it is also that from the very earliest age of doing my artwork online, from 16 onwards, I would say, there's been a number of that has represented my success in some incredibly abstract way. In my first website, it was a hit counter. It was like someone came to the site. I little embedded a little hit counter on the site and it would go up one each time somebody loaded the page. That was like the done thing in webcomics back then. You'd have a hit counter and the higher you hit counter, the more proud you were of your stuff, hypothetically. And then I moved to DeviantArt and that became likes and comments. And then I moved to Twitter. That became retweets and exposure. Throughout all of that, all of those numbers were incredibly abstract. They never fed my career in any tangible way that I could remember because I didn't use them to find clients. I didn't kind of get commissions from the people seeing my artwork for the most part. The breaks that I had were random fucking meetings with people or popping along to a forum and just being noticed at the right place and the right time. And that kind of incongruity of luck, alongside the alluring but completely illusory solidity of those numbers, they mean very little unless they're accompanied by the luck. I've never been able to reconcile it. It's always fucked with my head. And the only solution I found eventually was to leave, to not do that side of things.
0: I think you're 100% correct. And uh, life be hard, yo.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, back to the comic, because that's that's what we're here to really talk about. Were there any standout sequences for you? Any moments that you really just thought, yes, yeah, this, is, this is hitting it?
0: I actually wanted to bring focus on something that really made me laugh. And I had to read this out on stream. And when I say that, This entire thing is literally me. I can't stress enough how it feels like this is just a story from my life. It's just text bubbles from a phone conversation. And I wanted to read it because it's so fucking funny. I'm going to start midway in. On the pages in the comic, you're literally reading this as if you're reading a text conversation between two people. And so is writing. So when I was 18, I tried going to uni to study 3D game art. I lived in a student flat with four strangers. And this entire year I never used the kitchen because I didn't want to interact with the people I lived with. I'm sure they were lovely. Anyway, one day I decided I'm gonna be brave and treat myself to a microwave sweet potato. So I walk out of my room with the potato, but as I walk to the kitchen, I see people in it. And they've seen me, so I have to keep walking past so it doesn't look weird, but the only thing past the kitchen is the door out of our flat. So I walk out of the flat, the door closes and locks automatically. And I haven't got my key. So I'm stuck outside my flat, barefoot in my PJs, hair wet, because I just washed it, holding an uncooked potato. And then, hear people walking up the stairs, so I'm like, OMG, I better lose this potato fast. For some reason, the potato was the thing I was the most worried about, (laughs) them seeing. So I call the elevator, put the potato in it, and send it up to the top floor. Anyway, after nearly (laughs) pissing myself, I finally knock on the door so my flatmate can let me back in. While I'm barefoot and dripping wet in my PJs, potato less. <laughs> I oh was God. like,
1: I remember laughing my head off of that sequence.
0: As someone who lives in an apartment complex with that little fisheye through my door, if I'm about to head out and I hear that one of the neighbors on my floor is also heading out, I look through that fisheye and see them disappear downstairs because I don't want to interact with them. I don't want them to see me coming out with my trash or looking disheveled or something. I don't want them to acknowledge me. So I wait for them to fucking pass so I can walk in peace.
1: Ah, Very relatable as well. (laughs) I think uh, more because all of my neighbors seemed actually literally crazy when I was in university. I would do a similar thing.
0: Oh my God, Paul. (laughs) And I will cut this out if you're not comfortable. But can you share the story about the girl riding the fucking thing in the elevator?
1: Oh shit. Yeah, let's see if I can get this right. It's been a long while. When I was in university, I lived in a flat uh, with a couple of flatmates. One of them was a goth. She dressed in black all of the time and had, well, I was a goth too. We both dressed in black a lot. And she wore cat ears all of the time. This story isn't about her. It's about our weird neighbor who thought she was satanic and once left a sigil or a message, I can't remember what it was, in the lift. Written in menstrual blood, with a used tampon on the floor underneath it, is a sort of a ward, as far as I'm aware, against my flatmate, which is one of the wildest things I've ever encountered in my normal everyday
0: life. (laughs) So, I'm no expert on Satanism, but I picked that as more Satanistic than wearing cat ears and dressing in black.
1: Yeah, and the ironic thing was that my flatmate was actually Christian and ran a Christian help place for people who are in bad times.
0: I think it's safe to say that I would rather encounter a sweet potato in the lift than that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Reading this story it made me think it just made me picture the person who opened the lift at the top to find a single potato yes! in it.
0: <laughs> I think I would have been incredibly unnerved.
1: <laughs> I think this sort of punctuates the whole story. The kind of the bravery to put that out there, to tell that story about yourself, but also to recognise that it's gonna be fucking funny and slightly tragic all at the same time. And to use it as good material for a book, I think is it takes a lot of gumption, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I love. Again, it's so difficult talking about this without sounding like a fucking narcissistic cunt, but I've had people tell me numerous times that I'm so brave for openly sharing about my mental health. And I'm like, dude, I know you're well-meaning. It's not bravery. It's a cry for help. (laughs) Mm. It's if I don't do this, I will implode. If I don't ride on Blue Sky every now and then, because just to be fair, I'm not one of those who like Dear Diary. Every day I open Blue Sky, I'm like, here's my mental health status. Every now and then my glass fills over and I don't want to be that friend who's just always, I'm depressed. So I go on Blue Sky and I harass all my followers instead and I just go, yo, th- things suck, am I right? (laughs) In a slightly more (laughs) elaborate way. And I've gotten the feedback that some people find it so brave that I do that. I'm just like, no. So I guess I don't find it that... hmm, I should have phrased this because I don't want it to sound derogatory, but I don't find it impressive or courageous that she's doing this. I'm more relieved to see that other people are also willing to do this to put a human face on mental health.
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And... That reminded me of a particular segment from the book which stuck with me, actually. She talks about a sort of a superpower that being suicidal has given her, which is the ability to take risks because what does it matter? It seems like that, as much as anything, motivated her ability to put all of the stuff in a book and put it out there despite actively questioning her decision in the pages of the book. It was one of the most unusually upbeat things I've ever heard about suicide or suicidal thoughts that it had bestowed a sort of wild courage. She kind of says it's the reason she went to America, or that's a analysis of it anyway.
0: Yeah, uh, you do get this. Um, sorry, I sound like I'm generalizing. I can only speak from a personal perspective here, of course. But if you do deal with suicidal ideations and you are in a very dark place, you can get very reckless. And that recklessness can turn into substance abuse, just walking in front of cars because you don't care, that kind of stuff, you can can get very reckless. So I do find it very... Not to say that you're a lesser person for doing any of those things, because I have certainly been the person to just, for example, walk in front of cars, just to be perfectly clear that I'm not shitting on anyone here. But it is something very beautiful to see someone turn that into something somewhat positive. And I I am hesitant phrasing it that way because it sounds like I'm giving like a golden cookie to someone who was able to turn their mental health into a winning story and all the people who aren't are failures. And that is so not what I'm trying to get at here. But it is... Like you're saying, it's it's so difficult phrasing this without sounding like a fucking ding-dong, but it's a weirdly light-hearted, quirky take on being suicidal, which is somewhat refreshing for someone who is literally in the same camp herself. I feel like I can at least say that for me, I don't claim to speak for an entire nation here, but for me, like I said, it was very, very, very beautiful to see someone just say that, hey... If I just want to die anyway, I might as well just fucking do this story because I don't care about my image or how I'm perceived. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that is kind of cool.
1: Yeah, there's no genuinely fun upbeat way to talk about suicide. But at the same time, it's often the case that when people do get around to talking about it, because it's a relative taboo to discuss out loud or to just have a casual chat about it, you know, it needs to be preceded by trigger warnings and are you okays and can you hear this is and all of that kind of stuff, that it becomes very heavy and is often treated very heavily or very seriously. Seeing suicide talked about in a lighthearted way, not in a dismissive way, but in a, this is what it's like to experience. These are the kind of thoughts and feelings you have whilst you experience it. You know, because even when you're suicidal, you, you don't go through life feeling exactly the same way all of the time. You can still think about it and talk about it. You're still living in various different ways. There are still different streams of your life going on. It was good to see that in a story as opposed to some sort of weird sort of fetishistic focus on it and only it as the point of something or some terribly heavy thing that we should all feel really sad about.
0: Yeah, and also a third point where she doesn't come across as a martyr for doing this.
1: Yes. It's oddly, despite the fact that there's so much depiction of self-depreciation, the overall effect of the story doesn't feel self-depreciating to me. To the point where I, I wondered at some point like how does she feel about her own artwork because so so frequently that is the focus of a creator's self-depreciation I can't draw my drawings are shit I need to develop everyone else's drawings are better I actually felt that this book was remarkably free of that side of the usual or what I normally associate with creative angst.
0: Yeah, she even points out at least once, if not several times, that art is her escape, where whenever she has it rough, which sounds like it's quite often, she will just escape into her work, which is art, and then she can just create other lives for herself through her art. And that's such a beautiful approach to that. It can also, again, like I said in my blurb, it can become codependent, which I know it has become for me, Mm. but if it works for you in a way where you are not that mean towards your own craft, or the result of your craft, I think that's just wonderful that you're able to at least have that as a safe space.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If someone loved reading and just got a lot out of that, and it was what they did when they were having a bad day or suffering from really horrible thoughts. I don't think anybody would call that codependent. I think it's just that because creativity can have this burnout effect and it takes a lot of energy and it has this weird relationship that we've discussed with viewership and all that kind of stuff that it can become toxically codependent. But it can also be just something you love doing for yourself by yourself.
0: And not necessarily in the completely same topical situation, but a little bit similar is something that I've taught myself to do as of late is what would young me think of current me's art levels? Mm. I think that's very endearing, and especially because very young me, young teenage me was obsessed with X-Men Evolution, like we talked about on the show before. And my the, the man <laughs> of my life was uh, Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine. And I would draw him a lot. And I still to this day have these drawings from when I was like 13, 14. And even though my... clenches up and I cringe inside when I see them It's also very enamoring and today I've gotten to an artistic tool set where I can relatively confidently draw Logan and I've really enjoyed doing it I've rediscovered my love for drawing him again this last year Mm. and I just had this thought like man if 13 year old me could see me now heavily tattooed sitting here drawing Logan like living the dream that I had when I was 13 she would be thriving
1: (laughs) Yeah, I call them total perspective vortexes, when you just get this tiny little glimpse of what it would be like to look at yourself from another angle. It's really potent. A lot of the time, because I used to do workshops for secondary school age kids a lot when I was in the beginning of my career, one of the things that I used to do a lot was when I saw someone who was a bit down on themselves, but they were their art was sort of really promising and they clearly cared a lot about it is I just say, honestly, because this was almost always the case, at your age, I could not draw that well. Yeah. And all you've got to do is carry on, and you'll go beyond me. And if this impresses you, if what I can do here impresses you, it's within your reach. It just takes time. And it's a hard message to hear as a kid. I'm not sure how many people really internalized it, but hopefully it helped a few.
0: Yeah. What I kind of wondered if would happen with this episode happened, where it turned very introspective. But I think it's impossible to read this and connect with it and not get incredibly introspective at the same time.
1: Yeah, it almost invites you to think about yourself because of the way that it focuses on Zoe's reflections on herself. And in that respect, it's got this kind of very meta level to it. It's aware of what it's doing and it's doing it. And it's aware that it's going to be relatable. <laughs> Yet it's continuing to be relatable. <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting kind of tension, I guess, in the story, but that it makes it an even more enjoyable read if you pick up on that level of it.
0: After having read this, it really piqued my interest to check out her other work, both the stuff that she's completely written and drawn herself and the collaborations with another writer.
1: Yeah, especially cuz she compares at one point story that she did before, The Impending Blindness of Billy Scott where she put herself into the character a lot, but it was still fictional. I think that that was the thing that really launched her career. It was two years before It's Lonely at the Center of the Earth and a year before Rain. It would be really fascinating to compare her depiction of herself with less filters and her depiction of herself with a fictional filter.
0: I personally will pick up her other stuff. I will definitely let you know if it's something that I feel we should discuss on this podcast at some point
1: that made me kind of think about something. How did you feel about the end? Because we get to about five or six pages from the end, and she writes the title of the book down. And then there's a sort of a cut of sorts. We go back in with, I'll be honest with you, I'm writing this months later with the hope that if these are the last words that I write, then I can be satisfied. And it feels quite separate from the rest of the book. What were your sort of feelings reading that bit?
0: So this is where I think it veers into Brian Lee O'Malley second's territory for me, where it ties up with this very weird little bow, and it strikes me as a little tacked on, and this kinda, it will get better, said to self, from the future, kinda thing. I'm sure that's beautiful and works for some people, for me it definitely does not. I wish it kinda just ended with her finding the title of the book and then leaving the room. I didn't need the, Mm. life is messy, and we're gonna fuck up, and that's okay, and being messy is beautiful, and we'll all figure it out.
1: Right, yeah, she even, if I'm remembering right, took the piss out of that kind of memoir earlier in the story, and then sort of ends with it. But with a little tongue-in-cheek touch that she says, but if I may leave you with one last thing, it's, and you're expecting the secret, but then a pigeon flies in front of the panel, (laughs) which I thought was funny. Yeah. Um, But I did feel a similar way to you.
0: Yeah, it definitely attempts to be tongue-in-cheek, and I say attempts because I personally don't really feel it succeeds. Or maybe I'm just cynical and I just thoroughly do not enjoy these kind of, I almost said, ritros. I don't think that's a name, but when you're just writing an outro because you don't find another way to end it.
1: Yeah, and it may, there's a a chance that it may be something that for some reason Zoe felt for herself that she needed to do in the book something that she mm-hmm. needed to tell herself at the end of the book. Or it may be an editorial decision that the material was so heavy that we need some retrospective, hey, I'm sort of okay now at the end. But for me, the the way that it's got the title of the book written, followed by, but I'm trying not to live there anymore, underlined, does all of yeah. what the next few pages do exactly. in a much more elegant, short way. I thought that the book ending there would have, like, like you said, just been perfect.
0: And if it is editorial I think that's lame and if it's her choice it feels almost bizarre that it would be because she's been so blatantly honest about Other places in the book where you know an editor would have just like cracked her knuckles to be like, no, 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 leave that out. We can't have that in there. And she's like, fuck you, I'm going to leave it in here. So for that last (laughs) part to be an editor kind of holding her in the death block, being like, you put that in there, people are going to think you're going to unalive yourself tomorrow. That feels a little weird. So I'm. Oh, Almost yeah. tempted to say it's her choice, and that's super valid. I don't want to diminish her choice there. If she felt like that was necessary for the story, it was necessary for the story. Uh, it just isn't joy with me personally.
1: Yeah. There's another way to read it, um, which is that it's like an author's suicide note, that she doesn't know whether she'll be around to comment on the book. And so this is her comment on the book and herself in a little capsule
0: god that's bleak
1: that's very possible wow that's so um, bleak
0: paul why <sighs> now i thought it was this like somewhat tacky wrap up like but life will be okay he- he. and you're just like no it it might not be around just like dang dude
1: Say it. <laughs> sorry to bring it down <laughs> no
0: it's it it's, did occur
1: to me whilst i was reading it it's super
0: it, <laughs> valid i it just did not hit me and now that you said it, i'm just like yikers that's that's possible indeed yeah yeah okay well that makes me feel like an asshole
1: Like I said, I had the same interpretation as you, exactly, and then it just occurred to me, is it actually something slightly different? But it's it's hard to tell.
0: When she is at the convention at Thought Bubble, her and her friend... When Izzy can finally join her, they make two notes to stick on themselves that I'm not Zoe and I'm Zoe, unfortunately, or something along those lines, so that people visiting the table knows who to talk to, so they won't like talk to her friend, because her friend is an extrovert, so she will, of course, naturally converse more with the people coming to their table. And Hmm. at some point, Izzy leaves to look at the rest of the conventions, and Zoe is there herself, and then a random person shows up, and he just says unfortunate why unfortunate and she says sorry and he continues <laughs> i said why unfortunately so we good and she replies oh well it was actually a joke with and he cuts her off saying well it's not unfortunate jeez!" and then just walks off and i was sitting here like what a cocksucker <laughs>
1: That is such a real convention story. I have heard some nightmare things from the ways that people interact with people, like the weird passive aggression that you get, strange sort of, are you even here, do you even know where you are kind of things that people have said to people.
0: just tell me you're jealous without telling me you're jealous. Yeah, absolutely.
1: There was some nice, like, um, I don't know whether it was a combination of a stylistic choice to express things and a time-saving mechanism, but I really liked how she went around with this overly simplified version of her face in a lot of the panels.
0: Yeah, but it's funny you bring that up because I actually wrote, is her quote-unquote current self drawn so bland out of self-erasure?
1: I wondered about that. I mean, I'm sure it was, like I said, I'm sure it was an artistic choice first, but it has a wonderful side effect of making certain panels really easy to draw.
0: Yeah, a panel that made me laugh is when she... I just had it and I closed the fucking comic. But it's when she is with her love interest in America. And in one panel, she... (laughs) Sorry, I just found it again. (laughs) She has just taken that simplified face over a photo of her actual face and like, the features of her real face into the simplified comic Uh, version. Oh, (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny.
1: Yeah, that made me laugh. (laughs)
0: It's when they're doing drugs, which also fits the mood very well. She says, hey, did you know you look like a cat? And he replies, well, now having a photograph face of a cat in the panel. Yeah, I was just thinking how weird it is that you look exactly how you draw yourself. And she says, well, that would make sense. And that's the face where she's just like looking super <laughs> fucked
1: up. This does have very nice comic timing. That's just like really on point a lot of the time. And there there are authors that I would really respect just for their writing. Mm -hmm. But then there are people who own the timing between the panels, who make you feel the moment, anticipate it, and then undermine it or subvert it. And that comic timing in comics is so divergent from comic timing in books or film or anything like that. And the people who are good at it are rare and wonderful creatures and I think she's fantastic at it.
0: Yeah, dude. The more we talk about this, the more I'm just like, oh, I love this comic. <laughs> Even though it's so fucking bleak, it made me basically look in a mirror the entire fucking time. I love this comic.
1: don't really have anything to add to that.
0: <laughs> no, I've, I feel like once again we come to a pretty decent conclusion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely
0: next time possibly the final episode of the year we are tackling bird king written by daniel friedman and drawn by crom
1: i'm looking forward to it
0: same i'm pumped i'll see you for that see you then bye
1: bye wow were you actually listening to the ghibli gas
0: creativity becomes a toxic let's try that again
1: Hello, have you gone? S-
0: sorry, no, I was just looking at my notes because I was trying to find a, a place to jump from the <laughs> from the visual part.
1: She did, yes. Okay,
0: then. <laughs> Cut out all of what I just said. Becomes a toxic codependent relationship. Why can I not suddenly talk? We've talked for two hours and my brain has just like, no, it, that's enough, go to bed. Oh my god, you... Yeah. I, I, I need to drink. <laughs> <laughs>